if you will. Turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter, 1 Corinthians, as we continue our study through the Word. So as we're working through this letter that Paul writes, Paul writes it from Ephesus and it is part of an ongoing interaction of letters. And, and you remember that Paul begins by dealing with the issue, the primary issue that is going on there in the church of Corinth. And the primary issue is that they are carnal, that they are fleshly, that, and that they are new in their beliefs and their understandings. They, they have not left the world. They are trying to add Christ to the world instead of removing themselves uh, from the world and from following after Christ. And, and so one of the manifestations that we saw is the way that they were striving with one another. They were competing with the, each other for status within the church based on which teacher that they were associating themselves with. And Paul quickly denounces that and tells them that we're to be connected to Christ. We're not to be connected to individuals and that we are to love one another and that we are equal in the eyes of God. And God has given different gifts to each and every one of us, but those gifts were given to us, so we're not to be prideful of the gifts that we've been given, but we're to use those gifts to build the body of Christ and to build the kingdom. And, uh, and so Paul works his way through that issue. And, and then he comes to the issue of love. What does love look like? We know that the church is supposed to be a, a loving place. We know that Jesus said that we're to love God and that we're to love our neighbor. And so on that point, we're clear. But what does love look like? This was the issue. And so to the Corinthians, you'll remember that they had become very liberal, very worldly in their thinking. The, the world tells us that we're to be tolerant, that we are to be accepting of, of every person and of their sin. And so there was a sexually immoral situation that was going on in the church. There was a Christian man who, who was involved with his stepmother in a sexual relationship. And, and, and this, Paul says, is something that even the world abhors but the Corinthian church had taken the position that love means tolerance and so they were not confronting the issue they were allowing the man to continue to to fellowship and to stay in his sin and to bring his sin into the church and not only were they doing that, but then they were proud of it. They were saying, look at how spiritually mature we are. Look at how loving we are that, that we're accepting of, of, of everybody and of every situation and circumstance. And Paul says, do, do you think that I applaud you for that? He says that that's a shame to you. And he says that, don't you understand and recognize that a little leaven leavens the entire lump? And so he says that you're to confront that situation and to have that person turn from his sin and to turn back into the Lord again. And, and so, you know, that brings up a, a, the relevant topic of today. What, what does love look like? Is, is tolerance love? Because this is the exact same thing that the world is saying to us with the LGBT plus community. And 
This last week, I was uh, in Boston on vacation, and uh, down downtown Boston, there's the Freedom Trail, and love to go walk the Freedom Trail and look at the historic roots of our nation and and all. And, and I came across a, a, a church, a beautiful church. I love the the architecture in Boston is amazing because you have these these historic buildings that are you know built in the 1800s and then alongside of skyscrapers and so you have these old buildings skyscraper old building and right in the middle of boston right there by boston commons at the head of newberry street there's a church called the church of the covenant if you want to throw the slide up just a a, a beautiful beautiful church and that doesn't even show you the great tower that is to the uh, to the right of it but built in the 1860s just this magnificent uh, gem of a building, and you know, it just enjoyed looking at the at the spectacular, you know, architecture. Let's go to the next one, and you turn the corner and you go to the front, and, and here we have got the gay flag uh, right across the the front of it. Uh, on the left side, it says, "There, God is love," and then it says, "You are loved." And then at the bottom it says, and trans folk are beloved. Now, I don't quite understand what we're loved, but trans folks are beloved, but that's over on the left side. On the right side, we see that it says their climate uh, jubilee. And, uh, and so here we have a church that is, uh, that is proud of the fact of how inclusive they are and how accepting they are. Now, you turn the corner from that and go to the next slide, and this is the pillar that they have, the column that they have on the pillar. So this is what they are declaring. And God said, that's the top, protect abortion access for all. God said, ensure that black lives matter. God said, honor bodily autonomy. And God said, defend LGBTQ plus rights. And God said, end voter suppression. And God said, turn guns into plows. And God said, ready, abandon fossil fuels. <laughs> God said that. <laughs> and God said, provide sanctuary. And God said, abolish prisons. And God said, disarm hate. And God said, speak truth. And God said, breathe. In other words, love. So this is how this church now is defining what love looks like. And I wish that I could tell you that in Boston that this is the exception of what is going on, but you will see this type of a flag over many, many, many of the churches that are there. So people are being taught the church is teaching there if this is a church. It's certainly in a church building. But how do we define a church today? And who is a Christian today? And, and these are the, the bigger issues. Now, in the Old Testament, you had false prophets that would rise up. And false prophets would say, God says, and then they would say the exact opposite of what the true prophets were, <laughs> were saying. And suddenly now you had the, the people who were confused because the religious leaders were, who were supposed to be instructing and teaching people about God 
We're telling them the exact opposite of what God was really saying. And, and so you saw this incredible division in the history of the nation of, uh, of Israel. And, and today the church is struggling because you have these, and I will say a false church. I'm not even sure that I can call this a church anymore because, you know, a church, I believe, is a community that follows Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so here we see that none of those are the teachings of Jesus Christ, and yet now this is what their agenda is. So what has happened is that the world has come into the church. This is political agenda that is now in a church building. And this was the exact same issue that was happening in Corinth. The 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 world was coming into the the church and so Paul says do you think that I applaud you for this do you think that that's what love looks like that's not what love looks like at all enabling somebody in their sin is going to have eternal consequences for them and so Paul says that you need to judge that you need to hold them up to the standard of God's word and show them what God's word says uh, about that so that what so that they can depart from their sin and be restored in their relationship with Jesus Christ and that is what love looks like love looks like caring enough about somebody's eternal soul and destination to be able to show them the truth of God's word, not to enable them so that they don't feel convicted by the Holy Spirit in their life because you are supporting their sin. And so today in our culture, we see that this is the, the, the very same issue that is taking place, that, that love now, because the, the world knows that the church is supposed to love, is redefining what love looks like so that it now becomes tolerant and acceptance and accepting of their sin. And so here we see that this was the exact issue that Paul was dealing with there in that fifth chapter. We see that as we move into the sixth chapter, the world coming into the church, we see that once again, Paul is going to deal with another aspect of the carnality of the world that has now entered into the church. Now, in Corinth, Corinth was an incredibly litigious society. People were going and filing lawsuits against each other for just about anything and everything. They were a sue-happy society. Does that sound familiar? Uh, and, and now, you know, the, you have Christians that are within the body that are suing each other just like the world, and they're taking their court cases into the the jurisdiction of the courts and now you've got Christians fighting each other in front of the world and what a bad testimony that is and they thought nothing of it they're like you know what if I can get rich off of this if I got a little fender bender and can you know really take the insurance company and and get a lawyer and, and make an exorbitant amount of money and it doesn't hurt anybody then then what's wrong with it and Paul's like what's wrong with it well let's let Paul okay describe here Chapter 6, verse 1, dare any of you. Look at how he begins, how strong he begins. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law 
before the unrighteous and not before the saints. In other words, if you've got a disagreement with a brother, why aren't you bringing it to the church? Why are you running to court and then filing a lawsuit and now you're going to stand before a, a, a judge? Why are you trusting a righteous decision to come from the world instead of a righteous decision coming from, from the church? He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What's Paul talking about? When are, when are we going to judge the world? Well, remember, during the millennial reign, Christ is going to set up his government, and we are going to be the, uh, the government. We are going to help Christ in the adjudication here upon the, uh, the earth. And so uh, judging matters, the saints will be the ones that will be holding those positions. And, uh, and so he says, we're going to judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you. Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Uh, and verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, where are we going to judge angels? Well, it's not entirely clear, but we do see that uh, in 2 Peter 2, 4, it talks about the angels that have lost their freedom and that they are now uh, being restrained and they, they will be judged. And so maybe we become part of the jury of the judgment of those uh, angels or in some way, shape, or form, there is going to be a part that uh, we are going to uh, play as, as saints. But he goes on, how much more things that pertain to, to this life and if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? In other words, would we expect justice to come from the world or would we expect that a spirit-filled believer who fears God, loves God, and has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can bring about a better, more just resolution than, than the world can? And so why would you take a disagreement and go to the world? He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. And, and so here, you know, Paul is talking about, you know, is there no wise uh, among you that you, we don't have to sue one another, but that we can handle this in a, in a godly fashion. I want you to know that there is Christian arbitration that you can go and if you have an issue with another Christian that you can go to a Christian arbitrator uh, who will take and hear both sides and will uh, and will give a, a ruling for you. As Christians, we don't need to be uh, using the court system necessarily. And uh, and so and here we see that you know that Paul is saying, "Is there nobody wise?" He says in verse seven. Now, therefore. It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now, remember Jesus said that if you're slapped on one cheek that we are to what? 
turn the other cheek. And, uh, and so is it a situation where just surrender it to the Lord and if they want to cheat you and, and you surrender it to the Lord, he says, isn't that a better avenue to, uh, to take? And, and certainly there are times for, uh, for that. He says in verse 8, but no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. And, and so they are just completely immersed in, in the worldliness of the lawsuits and the litigious environment that is there in Corinth. He goes on now, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, you know, ripping people off and using the system, a broken system, to be able to take advantage of, uh, of others is uh, it's manipulation. It's dishonest. And so as believers, even if there is an opportunity, doesn't mean that we should take advantage of that opportunity if it is not righteous. And, and this is where Paul is talking to them about your conduct in the world needs to be righteous. You need to live righteously before God, not just when we come together and we sing worship songs and, and we pray, but how are we living outside of the walls of the church? And so Paul kind of reminds them of their identity in Christ. He says it's not the, the unrighteous that are going to enter into the, the kingdom of God. And, and so Paul here now describes what does the world look like? What, what does the world, what do the unrighteous uh, look like? And so he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be what? deceived do not be deceived and so two of the biggest weapons of the enemy are confusion and deception confusion and deception are are two of the biggest weapons uh, uh, of the enemy and so and paul here is telling them don't be don't be deceived he, he says neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And so here we have this clear list uh, of um, those that are practicing these uh, sins. This is considered and called the, uh, the unrighteous. And we see that, you know, Paul goes through the sexual sins. We've got fornication. We have got adultery. And we have homosexuality. So uh, all three of these are clearly listed here. Homosexuality, he adds to it sodomites. Sodomites are the effeminate homosexual that is within a homosexual relationships so the masculine and the feminine of the homosexuals are both listed here so very clear Paul is very clear now I want you to know that that in their day and in their age homosexuality was rampant it was rampant. This is not something new, homosexuality and the LGBT, you know, and Q plus this sin issue. I want you to know of the early emperor. So emperor, think of it, most powerful person running the head of the entire Roman Empire. There were 14 early Roman emperors before Constantine, 13 of them. 
out of 14 were considered to be either homosexual or bisexual. When Paul is writing this, Nero is the current emperor uh, at the time. Now, Nero himself was one of the most wicked of uh, all of the uh, emperors and uh, famous for his persecution of Christians, but he took this boy and had him castrated named Sporus, and then he dressed him up in a bridal gown, and, and then he had a wedding ceremony and married uh, this boy. This is the emperor. This is the, uh, the most powerful person in the world that was elevated to God's status because you had emperor worship that was going on at that time. Later on, Nero switched roles, and then he married an, a man, and he was the wife uh, to this man as well. And, and, and this was the moral pollution that was going on during the, uh, the day. That was what was going on uh, in the world. And so Paul is talking uh, about the sexual immorality that is not a part of God's people, not a part of the kingdom of God, and is not to be a part of the practice of, uh, of anybody that speaks the name of, of Jesus or declares it. And so here we see that he goes on and he, he talks about, you know, here's the issue. Do you love your sin or do you love the Lord? And, and so if you love the Lord, you have to depart from your sin. But first we have to identify what is sin and who defines what is sin? God is the one who defines what is sin. Now, we're not allowed to change what God defines as sin or not sin. And so here we have these churches that are flying the, the flag. But here, what does God's word clearly speak on the issue? Many scholars today say that one of the great tragedies in our nation is that there is a famine in the land for the Word of God. That churches are no longer teaching what the Bible says. Instead, they are declaring what love is, making up their own sets of values and saying that this is what God teaches. And because people don't know what the Word of God says, they then believe what those religious leaders uh, are now speaking. But you remember what the Bereans, that, and Paul says that the Bereans, he says they were more fair-minded because they tested every single thing against the Scripture to see whether or not these things are so. One of the reasons that we teach chapter by chapter, line by line, the Word of God, is so that you don't take my word for it, but that you know exactly what the Word of God says and that you can test every single thing against the Word of God. And so Paul is reminding them of what the Word of God has to say so that in their polluted culture they can know for certain what it is that sin looks like. And so he says that these are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, look at what he says in verse 11. But such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what does he say? There isn't a judgment. 
that we've been washed, we've been forgiven. He says that you were involved in many of those practices and in, in our past. And prior to being saved, then also we have our pasts and the sins that, that we were committing, partially because we didn't even know any better. But once we now are saved, we walk away from those sins and we say that was sin. And so here we see and understand Paul is not condemning the world. The, the world, that's what the world does. That's what the world is. That's the way that the world uh, acts. But he says, but you don't bring that sin into the church. You now identify it as sin. And then God calls you out of that sin. God does the work of convicting you on that sin. The problem is when you say that fornication isn't a sin. The problem is when you say adultery is not a sin. The problem is when you say homosexuality is not a sin. And then you've got the problem of taking God's word and saying that that isn't what God means. And so here we see that Paul once again is just reminding them of what they have been called out of and what is to be left behind. And what does that mean? It means that it's not allowed to be paraded or tolerated in the church, but that we are to love everybody, but to also speak truth in love. As a Christian now, what is our relationship to the law? Now, you remember that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which governed every aspect of your life, the law. But as a Christian, we're not underneath the law any longer. And so this liberty that I now have, how am I to use that Christian liberty that I have? And Paul addresses this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will dispose will destroy both it and them. And so uh, all things are lawful. This, this was probably a statement or a slogan that was in the Corinthian church. You know, don't judge me. I've got freedom. I'm not underneath the law. Don't put the law on me, man. You know, and so that now was kind of this license to go and to do uh, anything that, that you wanted. And, you know, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Remember, Jesus said it's not what goes into you that defiles you, but, you know, it's what comes out of you. So now they had taken this physical teaching about that Jesus had given about the dietary restrictions, and now they were applying it to the, well, if it's just the body, the, the, who cares what you do with the body because this body just dies. And so now they were using that to, to, to liberate themselves sexually uh, within the church. And so, you know, Paul here is talking now, he says, now the body verse 13, is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And so, you know, the, your body, it's not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. We are to use our body now to serve the Lord. And it says, and the Lord for the body. And so, in other words, the, the Lord is going to take care of your physical needs. You remember where Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what all of these things will be added un unto you. 
Build the kingdom of God. Love, love God. God will take care of your, uh, of your needs. And, and, but he says that, that we, our bodies were not meant, were not given to us for sexual immorality. That's a misuse uh, of our bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And, and so here once again we see that you know, Paul is talking about the sexual act of, uh, of, uh, uh, of intimacy. There is a connection that mm, takes place. There is a unity that takes place on, uh, on a level beyond just the physical. And, and Paul is saying, we've been joined with Christ. And so if, if we join ourselves in an immoral act, we are connected to Christ and we are connecting Christ into this uh, immoral act. And so you're bringing the Lord into this uh, immoral sin. He says, flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his uh, own body. Uh, and, and so sinning against your, your own body, that can also be translated, commits sins that hurt mm, his own mm, body. We live in a sexually saturated culture. It has just gotten out of control in, in my lifetime. Growing up and where things are now today are, are night and day. The computing power of a cell phone that gives youth access to the internet and to every single form of evil that is uh, imaginable has just saturated our, our culture. The use of the internet, while it has opened up tremendous opportunities for learning, for education, and, and for communication, has uh, also opened up Pandora's box. And, and so, just as in the day that Paul is writing this, where it was just a sex-saturated culture, we also are living in that same time. And, and what is the strategy? What does Paul offer as a, as a strategy? He says you have to flee it. You just have to flee. You will remember how Potiphar's wife was pursuing Joseph and, and was alluring him into this illicit relationship and continued to pursue it. And what does Joseph do? He just flees her. We see that Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I have purposed in my heart to keep myself separated from the sexual immorality that is uh, around me. I will not look upon a, a, a maiden to lust uh, after her. And, and here Paul is saying that, that you need to make a, a, an evacuation from the, uh, from the pervasiveness of the sexual invasion that we have in, in our culture. 
He speaks about our, our, our bodies, that there's a stewardship that we have, that God gave you your body, but now your body is no longer yours. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have surrendered your body now to His direction and to the glorification of God, to use our, our bodies as instruments of righteousness, he says, instead of instruments of, of unrighteousness. The, when you got saved, the most amazing thing happened was that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was placed inside of you that you now have the Shekinah glory of God dwelling inside of you. That was, that was what made the temple the temple. You see, the temple was just a building until the Shekinah glory of God came down. He said, I will dwell among men. You now are a living temple. You have the Shekinah glory of God, so your body is not your own any longer. It's a temple the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is seeking to remind them of this. He says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? One of the great cries for pro-choice is that it's my body and I can do whatever I want with it. And I want you to know in the world that that's true. A woman has authority over her own body. But once you become a Christian now, that authority over your body is now surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes Lord uh, over your body. He says, for you were bought at a price and therefore, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so uh, here we see that we are to bring glory or to bring honor to God by the way that we use uh, our bodies uh, here uh, upon this earth. As we close our study on this chapter, uh, I want to return back to verse 9, back to where Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And that's really what I wanted to, uh, to, to focus on, was not to be deceived about mm, sexual immorality. We mm, see that, you know, Paul says that we're to flee sexual uh, immorality, but, you know, here we see that, you know, sexual immorality, we have fornication we have adultery and we, and we have homosexuality we have those three kind of compromise now you know w what we would constitute as um, sexual immorality and and so fornication fornication is two people that are living together now there's a difference between the sin of fornication and being a fornicator the sin of fornication is a sin like any other sin. You are not supposed to commit sin. And if you commit sin, there isn't forgiveness from God. But a fornicator, th this would be two people that are living together now. 
They're living as a couple. They are practicing it as a lifestyle. They see nothing wrong with it in the short term, in the time being. And, and so they are engaged in the lifestyle of it. And so this is now a, a fornicator, somebody who is practicing this sin. And we see that God has clearly stated that the standard for sexual purity is that you are to not have sexual relations until after it is sanctified by the covenant of marriage. And so here is the, the world. Now, what does the world think of sexual purity before marriage? They laugh at it. They mock it. They say, that's the most ridiculous thing that I have ever heard, that you're going to tell me that you're not going to sleep with her until after you are married, and you're, that you're going to leave that something that is such a big part of marriage up to complete chance, and, and you are not going to engage. And they think that it's the most ridiculous. Now, you know, you should probably live together. That's probably the counsel of the world. Give a little test run, you know, just kind of see if you're compatible, you know. But you should absolutely be sleeping together before you are married. Look at the movies. Look at even the rom-coms, even the, you know, the, the, the fairly, you know, the, the, the PGs, you know, and all of those movies. You still, they meet boy meets girl, they date, and probably on the second date, they wake up in bed together the next morning talking about where they're going to go for breakfast, you know. I mean, and this is, this is Hollywood's agenda in view. So this is the, the world telling you there's absolutely nothing wrong wrong with uh, fornication whatsoever. But here we have the word of God saying there's everything wrong with it. It's not the way that God's called you to live. He says, come out from the way of the world. You're my people now. You're forgiven. You're washed. You're clean. There's no condemnation. But now you're to depart from that. Adultery. You're not to be adulterous. Now I want you to know in the Roman culture, Adultery was absolutely accepted, and it was commonplace. In fact, in many parts of, the, of society, in the Romans, the man would have three different women in his life. He would have this escort. His escort was the woman that you would have accompany you to the, the theater and to social events, and she would be on your arm, and this was just a, a, a social structure. There was a mistress. The mistress was for your physical pleasure, and she was not in public, but she was in private. And then you had your wife who was at home to bear you children and offspring and to run your household. And so this was the, the structure of uh, Roman society. And so adultery was, uh, was everywhere. It was commonplace and acceptable. But we see that, you know, what does God say about it? He says that you're to honor, that it's a covenant before me, and you are not to be uh, outside of the, the covenant with your physical intimacy. And so uh, we see the, the word of God clearly speaking about this. And, and you'll remember that, that Jesus then, that was the, the practice of the day was adultery, was everywhere. In Judaism, we see that God said that you shall not commit adultery, that this was one of the, the Ten Commandments and that was a, a, the moral standard of God. And then you'll remember that there was now the, the woman that was caught in adultery. 
And you will remember how they bring her to Jesus and they ask Jesus now to judge on the matter. And do you remember what Jesus did? He bends down and in the ground he begins to write and every single one of the accusers, starting from the oldest to the youngest, departs. And, and we see at the end that Jesus stands up and looks at the woman. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. And Jesus says, and I don't accuse you. I don't judge you. He says, but go and what? And sin no more. Stop. You need to stop. You need to depart from that sin. And so we see that there was then even the Pharisees that came and, you know, and they said that they haven't committed adultery. And Jesus says, oh, <laughs> not outwardly. But we see that the, the new covenant took uh, the, the law and brought it even further, brought it now within the trajectory. And he says that if you've lusted after uh, a woman, he says in your heart, you are guilty of that trajectory of sin. It might not have come into full bloom action yet, but in your heart you are. And so what does Jesus tell us? Stop. Homosexuality, rampant in the day. And we see that that is no different than fornication, no different than adultery. It's just another sexual immorality. The difference is that they say that it's not a sin when God has defined it as a sin. And so our issue is not that the world sins. It's when they redefine what God's Word says is sin or isn't sin. A person struggling with same-sex attraction, same-sex attraction is not a sin any more than heterosexual attraction is a sin. It's whether or not you act on it or you don't act on it. A person who's married is not to act on an attraction towards another person. That is a, a temptation that you are to resist. Uh, a person that has same-sex attraction is not to act uh, upon that same-sex uh, attraction and not to engage uh, in sin. Instead, they justify it by saying, I was born this way, this is the way that I am, uh, and so obviously that gives me license then to be able to commit this sin, and that's just faulty, uh, faulty argument and false reasoning. We see that, that those people that are struggling with sexual immorality, to the person that's listening, if you're struggling in fornication, I would say to you today, just stop. Depart from it and enter into the loving arms of your Savior who desires to wash you, cleanse you, and uphold you and bless you beyond what you can possibly imagine. To the person who is involved in adultery, I would say to you, stop. Return to the Lord. Allow him to wash you and cleanse you and, 
and love on you and fill you. To the person who is practicing homosexuality, I would say to you today, stop. It is not bringing you to the place of happiness that you are seeking. Depart and enter into the loving arms of Jesus Christ who will wash you and cleanse you and forgive you and begin a whole new journey of life together. The church is a place that speaks about life, eternal life, new life, a life of being born again, departing from the world and entering into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the one that teaches us what love looks like. God, we pray that you would help us to continue to be clear in our own hearts and minds. Lord, that we might have open arms to all sinners, but at the same time to speak truth in love and not enable sin, but confront it gently and lovingly that we might be set free who the sun sets free is free indeed. And so, Lord, we pray freedom for all people. We pray for salvation for all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, Lord, we speak words of life today. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.